Welcome to episode 286 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Neumeyer. Greetings, listeners. This week, we're going to be talking about the future of work, the anxiety of the gig economy, and how we might reimagine digital platforms. Inspired by the essay, Do Platforms Work? on Aon.co. I'd encourage all our listeners to check out that essay, which is a lot of fun to read. Is it fun? Is oh. it... <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe maybe not fun. Maybe uh, informative is the right way to. Um, I like it. I like it, it, it. Cover it. You know. Do you like informing yourself? Then maybe it's fun. So let's start with just a little groundwork around the future of work. So I think probably for the at least the past decade, we've had lots of discussions and thought about the so-called gig economy. And, you know, it's a popularized term now, but it really got its start, you know, early 2000s around freelance nation, right? So this idea that, you know, you were the arbiter of work and, uh, you know, many employers or companies would be looking for that work and you would farm it out to the highest bidder. And, you know, that was, you know, what the future of knowledge work was going to look like. Then Uber and and similar companies uh, sort of rolled out their platforms. And, you know, that that was sort of the future of work, the gig economy. But this time, you know, for moving people physically for uh, transportation. And there are all sorts of platforms today where you, of course, can go and find uh, great contractors, you know, like Upwork is one of those. There are all sorts of platforms where you can go and find people to code software or, you know, in whatever industry you're in, there are platforms that enable buyers and sellers to sort of come together. So all of this is fine and good, except that, um, well, number one, you know, the gig economy is just that. It's it's piecemeal, right? So if there is a lot of buyers and very few sellers and you're on the, you know, the selling side and your skills are in demand, then life is good. Um, but if you're trying to piece a bunch of things together, uh, that's where, you know, people can get very anxious about where their next paycheck will come from. And of course, this is the anxiety of the gig economy. And I think experienced by all gig workers because uh, you are subject to the whims of the market and, you know, these circumstances can change uh, on a dime, really. Yeah. So that's vastly different from having steady employment. And, you know, I can really sympathize if, if you know, you're trying to put together a lot of freelance gigs as a designer or a writer, uh, not an easy thing to do. So the point of this article really is this idea that during sort of the second phase of the internet where uh, sort of the larger tech companies that that are so important today from Google to Facebook to Amazon sort of started consolidating people's attention and transactions online. You had this moment where the platforms, the, there were fewer of them and more of our e-commerce and, and work is going through these platforms. And I think the author is basically arguing that, you know, we've got this, um, you know, sort of limited number of platforms and then so many 
people who are interacting with them, you know, it's it's all to the advantage of the platform owners right now. And we know that this is not the greatest situation yeah. and and allows for the kind of abuse, you know, that you see around things like people's data uh, being sort of used in ways that they may not wish. And so the author of the article then proceeded to talk a little bit about uh, this idea of co-owning platforms, enabling digital workers to own a piece of the platform, and that maybe that would be, you know, a possible future where we don't all become digital serfs for the oligarchs of, you know, the, the biggest tech companies. Yeah. So with that preamble, Dirk, I'd love to know some of your thoughts about this. I know you, you think about these, uh, these issues a lot, and, and I'd love to get your take on it. Yeah, you know, philosophically, it's, it's interesting. And as a potential theoretical strategy of, uh, you know, lifting us workers up and not leaving us behind the, the moneyed men and women, um, great. It is just that right now. It's theory. You know, the article had some had, had some, some examples, examples yeah. but the examples are really questionable. You know, there was a ride-sharing one that they had, and, you know, if you dig into that a little bit more deeply, the website for it is, like, just on some generic blog platform. It only allows payment through very janky interfaces around cryptocurrency and Indiegogo, right? I mean, the gap, the experience gap between that and Lyft, Uber, whatever, it's just, it's a chasm, right? So, that may be appropriate for the more bleeding edge. People who already, frankly, are would be considered part of the tech elite, even if they're not the money people at the top of the pyramid. But it's it's not doing anything for the masses at all. You know, not showing much traction. It's it's just an idea still. It's just it's still in theory because the the attempts at it are nascent at best. So uh, yeah, I mean, rock on, right? Like we need solutions for the future that don't result in the masses being left behind. I mean, even in the present, the masses are being left behind, but more and more of us will be left behind the way the future is progressing currently. And, you know, we need solutions around that that not only allow you and me and people like us to to um, keep having a path forward to, you know, safety, security, and, and wellness, but to broaden that and bring more people up who are currently being left behind and shouldn't be. These are things that need to be addressed. The idea of these sort of networks, um, these sort of platforms, uh, being a key to that is a really good idea. But there's a lot of a lot of complexity in in the way. And you know, one of the things that will work against it too is technology. So we mentioned that ride sharing platform. I mean, you know, ride sharing type of technology is something that is is really likely to be further disrupted by uh, self-driving stuff, right? And so the people who are creating the self-driving vehicles themselves are are going to be good candidates for creating platforms that, again, are just rewarding the the owners, the people at the the top of the pyramid. So both from the standpoint of the speed of technology, leaving these, these existing platforms behind, but then the manifestation of the technology in these heavy capital-intensive contexts also creates an opportunity to disenfranchise those who are trying to move forward via a platform. So it's just, it's easy to to share the idea, and it sounds great, and it's inspiring, and it's kind of focused on on, on a real problem, um, 
boy, there's 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 a lot for between good idea and something that actually could work in a repeatable way instead of just in one little um, one little micro community or another. Yeah, while you were saying that, you know, I had had some thoughts sort of based on my experiences around, you know, early 2000s when the tech industry went through a pretty significant lull after the internet bubble burst, right? That was that was sort of there there were a lot of engineers who were either underemployed, working for themselves or, you know, let go or whatever. And that's the time when you saw uh, some of these early open source blogging platforms take shape. So before the so-called Web 2.0 uh, revolution, most of web publishing was, you know, you either sort of coded it yourself or, you know, you would go through this sort of long design and deployment process and 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 post something online or you know maybe you were just posting stuff you know because you were at a lab or something like that but sure. uh, web 2.0 really helped democratize a lot of the um content creation and of course facebook sort of came out of that period wordpress came out of that period exactly too. Yeah. and and that's what i'm getting at, that there's this opportunity where there were probably lots of engineers and designers with time on their hands, and they were able to create sort of the foundational layers for platforms that people could self-publish. Now, you know, the end result was that Facebook got a ton of funding and sort of rose to the top and became the juggernaut that it is today. But as, you know, the economy goes in cycles again, I think there is probably going to be another opportunity for engineers to be sort of creating the whatever that next level platform is that would be more egalitarian. You mean the social, you're talking more specifically now about the social network that would replace Facebook essentially. Or, you know, like, uh, you know, we have that example, you know, what would Uber be like if it were owned by the drivers or what would any of uh, sort of the, the, the so-called sharing platforms look like if they were owned by the people who are using them and not by a centralized power. It, it might not kind. be good, right? It might not be good because centralized power is one of the things that makes it all possible. What makes so I use Lyft instead of Uber. Those are the two main players here in the United States. What makes Lyft work for me is it doesn't matter what airport I'm coming out of, there can be a car ready for me. And it's pushing a few buttons. Don't take out my credit card, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Centralization allows that to, let's say you want to have a competitor to Lyft and you want it to be a driver-owned and organized thing. Where do you get the capital for marketing? How, Assuming you can bring together all these drivers, you can federate all these communities, you can build a product that is peer to the existing products that have spent, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, whatever the number is at this point for Uber and Lyft as organizations, assuming you can overcome all of those hurdles, then how the hell do you market it so that people like you and me even understand that that's an option as opposed to a Lyft? Where does that money come from? You don't have a big fat VC. The whole point is to, to, to push those people out of the picture. You don't have the daddy warbucks there to, to just burn money so that the world can find out that you've done it. So the paradox, one of the frustrating things about capitalism, about um, sort of generational and cross-generational wealth is that the people who have the money are the ones who can make more money. They're the ones who can make the future platforms. They've got the money to burn, to waste, to spend, to make that happen. So you know, the the sort of, you know, communist drivers of the world unite model 
there's a lot of boundaries between getting them to unite to having something that actually is is a credible competitor and and then to to take the article's point to do that across many industries it just gets harder and harder so sure it, it, it might be possible but I think the people who are talking about these ideas such as the particular article we've talked about here I'm not seeing any path to viability it's just a lot of hand waving and smoke and good ideas and you need those I mean I I do a lot of hand waving and smoke good ideas of my own. But it's a long way from that moment to it being a real thing. And there are huge barriers in this case. And and overcoming those barriers all seem to drag us back to the same old, you know, daddy Warbucks, the rich get richer model. Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, so so point well taken. Of course, that's all very true. I think there are Nascent possibilities. I mean, we talked about you know WordPress sort of coming out of uh, sort of early Web 2.0, and that really created whatever the blog economy, right? That didn't exist beforehand. Self-publishing really wasn't there. I mean, on on uh, say like the messaging side of things, uh, you sort of see Twitter has you know the platform for that, but on the opposite side of the coin, you have something like Discord, right, for gamers, which is on a private server, sort of handled by uh, in a DIY fashion by who, you know, whatever group wants to stand up a server. So there are, I mean, and sort of the whole open source movement is is based on that. You have uh, Linux, which is, you know, sort of the the go-to example, right, you know, of open source spreading. So I'm a little less skeptical, although certainly, uh, you know, all the difficulties are there. The one thing that strikes me as there's a profound need for there to be worker-owned assets. So you see in the Industrial Revolution, you get unionization, right? And so the asset there was the labor, right? And so collective labor really was what people were able to come together in a union and then use that, you know, as a bargaining chip because it's not just the one guy, it's the many guys who are, but it's their labor. Yeah. Um, And then, so in our digital transformation, that revolution, there really hasn't been that consolidation of labor in the same way. There hasn't been a digital workers union. There's not, none of that exists right now. And I do think that, you know, one route there is this idea of the participant-owned platform. I'm not saying that that's what's going to necessarily sure. take take hold, but there is a profound need for there to be a counterweight to capital in this uh, because over the long term, you're just not going to have a healthy economy as money works its way to the top and stays there. For this system to be able to continue on in any sort of recognizable form that doesn't get, you know, just turn into a complete cluster screw, you need counterbalances. And right now, all the weight is moving in one direction. So I do see the profound need and the possibility, right? Definitely but, a profound but, need, yeah. yeah. But like you, I mean, you know, the the route there, who the heck knows? But there are sort of pockets of, you know, technology is, you know, completely surprising to me. Like, I, I got to say, in, in the 2000s, I had, you know, I, I, was, I was blown away by WordPress. I, I couldn't, like, the, the amount of power that that gave you was just stunning. So there's lots of room for surprises here. 
I guess my hope is that the needs and sort of the possibilities come together uh, in time to sort of counteract what I see as really a system decay right now and unsustainability over the long term. Uh, I, I think this will create more system health, quite frankly. Maybe. You know, one of the problems is that even the successes uh, don't ultimately create system health. So if we talk about WordPress, right? Yay, WordPress. WordPress is used as a professional website platform, and it's in a, a market environment in which the customer expects websites at dirt cheap prices. Um, you know, websites have been commoditized to... You know, somebody will expect a new website for $1,000, a couple thousand dollars, um, which is pushing the labor cost down to unsustainable levels for people in the United States, um, leading to the design and development of WordPress sites going offshore, going to other countries. So you have this tool, it's open source, we can say a lot of good things about WordPress, but it has fueled a pressing down of market expectation around what a professional, competent website should cost for a, a small company or for a, a, an independent who's trying to get their own thing done that is to the detriment of the very people that we're talking about helping and saving in, in these different systems. So, uh, you know, again, even with the, the successful open source, yay, good, rah-rah uh, solutions, you know, they often are burning the people who really can't afford to be burned. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 286 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.